Welcome to this Federalist Society faculty book podcast discussing Professor Adam Winkler's new book, Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Thank you for tuning in. Gunfight tells a story of the six-year courtroom battle that culminated in the Supreme Court's 2008 ruling in District of Columbia versus Heller, invalidating a law banning handgun possession in Washington, D.C. In the book, Winkler gives a historical overview of the battle between gun rights and gun control advocates and brings to light what he argues are the often misunderstood legal and historical issues central to the history of guns in America. Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA School of Law, is joined by Nelson Lund, the Patrick Henry Professor of Constitutional Law and the Second Amendment at George Mason University School of Law to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Winkler. Well, I want to thank the Federalist Society and Nelson Lund for arranging for this podcast of Gunfight, my recent book published by W.W. W. Norton in the fall of 2011. I intended Gunfight to be an eye-opening examination of the story of guns in America, and it weaves together what one reviewer called the Grisham-like story of a landmark Supreme Court case, District of Columbia against Heller, and the fascinating, often hidden history of guns in America. I argue in Gunfight that we've always had the right to bear arms in America, an individual right. At the same time, we've always tried to balance gun rights with public safety, and we've had various forms of gun regulation throughout American history, and one of the things that I try to do in Gunfight is to show how America's been shaped by our efforts to balance gun rights with public safety. And building on the lessons of history, I map out a way to break the current political stalemate over guns. As I mentioned, the book really revolves around that D.C. against Heller case. Although the Supreme Court had mentioned the Second Amendment in passing through the years, the justices had remarkably never squarely addressed the meaning of this controversial provision, at least never in a consistent and clear, unambiguous way. People had challenged gun laws in court, but they were usually criminals desperately seeking to overturn convictions for gun crimes. And, you know, United States against crackhead is not a really promising vehicle for interpreting the Second Amendment. But over the past 30 years, we've seen a social movement arise to protect gun rights, much more powerful than it was in the past. And this inspired three entrepreneurial libertarian lawyers to bring the Heller lawsuit. And they kind of mimicked the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's efforts in the civil rights movement. They strategically recruited ideal law-abiding plaintiffs and challenged the most restrictive gun law in the nation, Washington, D.C.'s ban on handguns, an effective ban on the use of any other kind of firearms for self-defense. And their case was welcomed by the Supreme Court, even though, interestingly enough, the NRA really sought to stop the case from going forward up until the point where it reached the United States Supreme Court. One of the things I liked in researching my book was to be able to tell the story of Alan Gura, the young libertarian lawyer who was the main lawyer in this case. Clark Neely, who came up with the idea of a Second Amendment lawsuit at a happy hour, and Bob Levy, who financed the case, hired Gura, who was a young libertarian lawyer who believed in the cause and was willing to work for what Bob Levy called subsistence wages. Four years later, when the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, Levy's friends in the gun community pressured him to replace Gura with a Ted Olson or a Ken Starr or another Supreme Court expert. Levy, however, had promised Gura that this would be his case. And at the same time, the legal team for the District of Columbia, I found in my research for gunfight, was pretty much overwhelmed. They were in disarray. The original lawyer brought in to argue the case was fired abruptly in a personnel shakeup. 
Walter Dellinger was a last-minute replacement, and so the case was set to go before the United States Supreme Court. We all know the outcome of the case, what happened with the Supreme Court case. The court ruled that the Second Amendment does protect an individual right to bear arms and made an important statement about the purpose of the Second Amendment. And I think maybe in time will help to resolve some of the debate over guns in America. Because the court made clear that while there is an individual right, there's also space for gun control. But I think the Supreme Court case, if it becomes part of the settled fabric of American constitutional law, as it should, takes disarmament off the table. And that disarmament is one of the reasons why the gun debate has spun out of control. Many gun enthusiasts fear that the government is going to come take their guns, that if we accept this gun control law, it puts us down the slippery slope towards total civilian disarmament. But the Supreme Court has said we cannot have total civilian disarmament. There is a right to bear arms. At the same time, it takes away from the gun control extremists their goal of disarmament, because for all the gun enthusiasts who fear that this next gun control law will take us down the slippery slope, there are gun control extremists who hope it will take us down the slippery slope and that we can eventually get rid of all the guns. It's a profoundly unrealistic goal. There's 280 million guns in America today. And I think one of the most important things for all gun policy discussions is to accept the permanence of guns in America. They're not going anywhere. And until we get rid of the idea of getting rid of all the guns, we're not going to move towards a settlement of the gun law and gun control issue. So a big part of the book is about Heller and the Heller case. A small part of the book is about gun policy and kinds of the mistakes we've made in the past in regulating guns and things we could do in the future. One of the most fun parts about the book, I think, I'd uh, be curious to hear what Nelson thinks, is to discuss the history of gun rights and the history of balances between gun rights and gun control. Because there's been so much heated debate about the Second Amendment, but that I found in my research for gunfight that Regardless of what the framers thought about the Second Amendment, which I believe is best interpreted as an individual right, Americans have had the right to bear arms, regardless of the Second Amendment. Forty-three states currently protect an individual's right to have guns for personal self-defense. And I also discovered and discuss at length in the book how the, when the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution after the Civil War, it was done in part to protect the ability of newly freed blacks to have guns to protect themselves against the KKK and other white racists who were bent on returning them to slavery. And so the right to bear arms is a long-standing right without any real question, regardless of the Second Amendment, even though I think that the right interpretation of the Second Amendment is as protecting an individual right. One of the most fascinating things I found was the intersection of race and gun control. And it makes sense. One of the ways in which you keep people second-class citizens is by imposing upon them restrictions on their rights, and in particular, denying them the right to fight back against state or communities that are interested in oppressing people. And so we, the Founding Fathers had racially discriminatory gun laws that barred black, free, or slave from possessing firearms and that the KKK, in some senses, began as a gun control organization. Obviously, the goal of the KKK was white supremacy, but what happened was that during the Civil War, blacks in the South got their hands on guns for the very first time in American history, and racist whites formed posses like the KKK to go out at night and to confiscate those guns from the freedmen. If blacks were disarmed, they wouldn't be able to fight back. And I think that dynamic of race and gun control has continued into the modern era. In the 1960s, a series of gun control laws were passed to restrict access to guns by urban blacks and radicals like the Black Panthers. And ironically, it was these laws, which were supported by conservatives and liberals alike, that sparked the rise of the modern gun rights movement. 
So gun laws that were designed to restrict access to guns by urban, left-leaning black radicals ironically sparked a backlash among rural white political conservatives that gave rise to the modern gun rights movement and ultimately led to the Heller case. Okay, Adam, that's a very good summary of a very good book. I read the book carefully, and I first have to say that I found very few factual errors, which is a tribute to Adam's care and scholarly diligence. That was especially pleasing with respect to things that I've said and written, which he got right, and which not everybody always does when they refer to what I've said and done. The book is also very fair and balanced. Nothing in it should be seen as kind of biased or objectionable by anybody taking any reasonable position on the issues that the book discusses. I was asked to provide some criticism or critical commentary on the book, so I'm going to leave my favorable comments at that and make a couple of criticisms or qualifications. One criticism I have is that is really a flip side of the book's virtue of being very fair and balanced. Adam does a very good job of attacking the extremists on both sides of the gun control issue and both sides of the Second Amendment issue, especially the rhetoric that's used sometimes for fundraising purposes and other reasons. But that leaves a huge middle ground. And the book doesn't give what I thought was any really serious attention to the critical questions about exactly where the lines between permissible and impermissible regulations should be drawn. For that reason, I think that Adam may be a little bit too optimistic when he says that this book provides a basis for breaking the political stalemate. I'm very skeptical about that. Now, a related question which has to do with this huge middle ground in which we would be looking for lines between permissible and impermissible regulations has to do with the proper interpretation of Heller and the sequel McDonald in which the court applied the Second Amendment to the states. Now, I understand that there's a book aimed at a general audience, not a legal audience particularly, but I think in this area it's just not going to be possible to escape some pretty detailed legal analysis. Adam says that the court basically endorsed the political status quo. And I think that's right in broad terms. But future courts, including especially the lower courts, can't just do a Gallup poll to find out what the political consensus is on the many specific issues left open by Heller and McDonald. They're going to have to use legal analysis. Uh, Lawyers on both sides of the issue are going to have to use legal analysis when arguing their cases in court. And talking about a reasonable middle ground just doesn't get you very far in doing that kind of legal analysis. I'm just going to give a couple of examples. One of the issues left open by Heller has to do with the relationship between open carry, in other words, publicly carrying a gun in public in plain sight, and concealed carry. The court didn't say anything at all about open carry. In a dictum, it endorsed bans on the concealed carry of firearms. But in a lot of jurisdictions, openly carrying a firearm would be quite alarming to much of the public and could create all kinds of secondary undesirable effects. 
so if but if the courts were to conclude that you may neither carry a gun openly in public nor could carry one concealed then the right to bear arms which is explicitly mentioned in the second amendment would be gone and heller hasn't hasn't resolved that and i don't think the courts are going to be able to just kind of take account of the political consensus or the status quo or something like that to resolve that question. Another example, some jurisdictions have banned large magazines. Seeing more talk about that after the shootings in Aurora, Colorado, but the issue actually came up in a sequel to Heller called Heller II, in which the same plaintiff in the original case, along with some other people, challenged the regulations that D.C. adopted after the Heller decision. And one of those regulations was a ban on large magazines over 10, that held over 10 cartridges. I don't think you can just look at the social consensus or kind of what people generally want or Gallup polls or something like that to resolve the question of whether that's permissible. And again, Heller said nothing about it. Another example, this one comes out of the Seventh Circuit, Chicago, after it lost in the McDonald case, where a law that was similar to the one in D.C. was struck down by the Supreme Court. They, like D.C., went back to the drawing board and came up with a lot of new restrictive regulations on firearms, including a ban on firing ranges. And the Seventh Circuit struck down that ban. They didn't technically strike it down because of the procedural posture of the case, but they gave an analysis that basically indicated they probably would strike it down. Again, that a ban on firing ranges. That's not addressed by Heller. It's not clear what the social consensus is on something like that or what the relevant social consensus would be. Would it be Chicago? Obviously, then, then the law means nothing. If, it, if it's just going to be whatever Chicago wants to do, is it Illinois? Is it the Midwest? Is it the United States? Very hard to answer that question. So I think there are a lot of questions that are going to have to be addressed by the court, and they're not going to be able to do it by any other way than developing a legal framework and engaging in legal analysis. This is particularly important with respect to the issue of breaking the political stalemate, because one likely consequence of Heller and McDonald is that jurisdictions like Chicago and the District of Columbia, having been told that they cannot disarm the citizenry, will adopt all kinds of measures designed to make it extremely onerous, burdensome, difficult to have a gun for self-protection when you need it for self-protection. And we've seen the same kind of phenomenon in the First Amendment area. When the government wants to restrict free speech and the courts tell them they can't do that, then they look for ways to make it more difficult, onerous, burdensome to exercise your rights of free speech. We've already seen Chicago and D.C. do the same thing. I think as the years go by, if there continues to be political pressure for coming as close to disarming the citizenry as the courts will allow governments to do in some jurisdictions, then the real question is going to be how vigilant are the courts going to be? Are they going to be as vigilant as they have been in the First Amendment area, or are they going to let these things slide and say, well, you can't have disarmament, but you can do it indirectly, in effect? We don't know the answer to that question yet, but it's not the kind of thing that I think is going to be solved by saying there's a broad middle ground of reasonable regulations that every reasonable person should be able to agree on. Well, thanks so much for those great comments, Nelson, and thanks for your work on the Second Amendment. My book wouldn't have been possible without your scholarship and your research. 
and I'm sure the case would not have happened were it not for your scholarship and your research. So it's a great honor to get some critical commentary from you about the book. I agree with Nelson's comments and criticism, frankly. I don't think that all of the issues, the main issues in the gun debate are going to be solved simply by saying, well, let's find some reasonable solution. What I tried to do in the book was not to do a book that was going to answer all of these questions, and and Nelson acknowledged that in his own comment. My book is really much more about looking at the past and providing some guideposts for the future, but isn't designed to answer all of the particular questions. I try to address some policy questions throughout the book with regards to the permanence of guns in America and also address particular issues that have been controversial. I'm highly critical of the federal assault weapons ban that's now being bandied about for reauthorization purposes, although I don't think those efforts are going to go anywhere in an election year. And I'm very critical of the assault weapons ban as being a silly law that was really not well designed and didn't actually limit very many people's access to guns at all. And in fact, if we were to reauthorize the federal assault weapons ban, the ironic result would be it would lead to a huge increase in the sale of assault weapons because gun owners would stockpile these firearms before they were made illegal to sell. So I try to address some policy issues throughout. With regards to looking at the political process and um, sort of where we are, I certainly don't mean to suggest in my book that it's ever appropriate for courts to just look at polling results or try to figure out what Gallup thinks Americans believe with regards to proper limitations on any constitutional right. I guess what I was trying to get at in that section was to really say that one of the ways in which we understand the Supreme Court is by cases like Brown versus Board of Education. The Supreme Court is being out front, leading change on some big social issue. But more commonly, we see the Supreme Court being a follower, not a leader that where political consensus evolves outside of the court, the court is much more likely to step in and affirm that consensus. Nelson mentions the issue between open and concealed carry. I think here's an area where the consensus probably will shape constitutional jurisprudence in the future, not because courts will look at polls, but courts will look at the fact that there's only a single state in our country that completely bars concealed carry of firearms. I think that's going to be a telling statistic when the Supreme Court eventually rules on whether the right to carry a concealed weapon is constitutionally permissible or not. I guess my overall take on policy and what we can do for the future is is that I guess there are specific reforms we could adopt. Nelson and I might agree on some of those, might disagree on others. I'd like to see a background check for every single gun sale in America. I just don't think there's ever a reason why someone should be able to easily sell a gun to someone who they don't know has passed a background check. Of course, that would require some technological developments to make those background checks easy for ordinary people to do when they sell their own gun collections. But I do think that the biggest agenda item in the gun debate must be to change the dynamics of the debate itself, that there are many people in the gun community who support gun control but worry that gun control proponents are really out to take away their guns, and that the only way we'll restore reason to the gun debate is by sincerely embracing the right to bear arms. And only after we do that can, I think, we move towards finding political solutions to the gun issues that confront us. I certainly agree that as a factual matter of the court endorsing the status quo in broad terms, both in this context and others, a reluctance to get too far out ahead of what the court perceives as the public on too many issues. I certainly think that's true, and I think it will undoubtedly influence the course of Second Amendment jurisprudence going forward. My only point was 
how exactly it plays out in the courts is going to require a level of legal detail and argument that Adam didn't present in the book and didn't try to present in the book. So all I mean to suggest that there is a gap there, an intentional gap, but an important one, especially for lawyers, but for everybody to recognize when they think about these issues. With respect to the political future of gun control, I don't claim to be an expert on that or some kind of political prognosticator. But again, I have to say I'm a little bit more skeptical of the potential for kind of a consensus developing, or at least a really broad consensus developing around some sort of reasonable approach with, you know, maybe minor disagreements at the margins between the two sides. The gun control movement over the last few decades has been pretty remarkable for its willingness to push very, very hard for measures that no reasonable person could really expect to have large effects in the way that the proponents of the measures want. There seems to be a kind of intense preoccupation with symbolism and with taking advantage of kind of well-publicized incidents in order to push for things that don't seem likely to do much in the way of reduction of criminal violence, and a kind of complete disregard, at least at a rhetorical level, for legitimate rights of gun owners. There's a kind of irrationality about the programs as it's developed in public over the last few decades. And that suggests to me that there's something else going on in the minds of those who are most kind of vociferous and energetic about advocating gun control. I don't know what it is, but the idea that everybody would just agree we all have some kind of right to guns, that that will fundamentally change the nature of the debate, I think I'm just more skeptical than you are, Adam, about that. And I think one thing that Nelson and I definitely agree on, though, is that we hope that reinvigorated jurisprudence of the Second Amendment can put an end to these largely symbolic, predictably ineffective gun control efforts, laws that are efforts really to snub their nose at the Supreme Court like Chicago did when they said, well, anyone who wants to possess a handgun like the Supreme Court says we must allow, well, they have to get a permit first, and to get a permit you have to do an hour of training on a gun range, and we're going to outlaw the operation of any gun range in the city of Chicago. Those are the kinds of laws that need to be overturned, and hopefully we're moving in the right direction with the Heller case. Thank you for listening to this Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.